Welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy Ethics Matters uh, series. Uh, our speaker today is uh, someone I thought of earlier as a rising star in uh, political, uh, legal, and ethical philosophy. Uh, now I think she's a risen star. Uh, Kimberly Brownlee is from Canada, where she studied at McGill University, uh, and then at uh, Trinity College, Cambridge, and got her doctorate uh, after studying at Corpus Christi College, uh, Oxford. Uh, her thoughts about civil disobedience uh, in one way uh, were initiated uh, through reading uh, John Rawls and uh, Joseph Raz's works. Uh, I also uh, began thinking about it uh, a long time ago when I was a student of Rawls, uh, so I was particularly interested uh, to hear uh, Kimberly's uh, talk today. Um, I must say uh, that I am not Peter Dennis, who's on the program, uh, <laughs> because I uh, asked specially if I could chair uh, a meeting of an old friend. Uh, Confucius said there's nothing better than talking about philosophy with old friends, so I think you can all count as old friends tonight. Uh, if you don't know about the forum, there are leaflets with our uh, program for the current uh, term, uh, but I hope that you will enjoy uh, the session today, and we'll come back. Uh, Kimberly? So my voice doesn't carry. I hope that's you all right at the back. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, thank, you, thank you very much, Nick, for, for coming from Oxford to, to be here tonight. And, uh, and thank you to the um, Forum for European Philosophy and uh, to Peter Dennis for inviting me to speak. Um, it's, a really, it's a lovely series, Ethics Matters. Um, it's, it's, it's wonderful when philosophers have a chance to, to think about their topics in very practical terms that are, uh, and to put it in language that isn't built for the philosopher but is, is meant to be um, publicly usable. Uh, so that's a good, a good challenge for us sometimes. Um, so th th my topic, civil disobedience, the, why the ethics of civil disobedience matters, this is a, a lovely task to, to think about because um, civil disobedience is, is actually a, a pretty hot topic right, right now. It, it, it had a lot of attention from philosophers and from politicians in the 1970s. Um, you know, a lot of that related to the Vietnam War and um, philosophers turned their attention to this topic. Uh, you know, was it legitimate to use civil disobedience to oppose a war? What were the limits of, of legitimate participation? And then it kind of died down as a topic. Um, philosophers didn't give it a lot of attention. But it's, there's sort of a new generation of people who are thinking about it, and it's partly because some things have changed. So there, and a lot of that's to do with technology. So if you, if you look now at the types of protests that people are engaging in, first of all, there's, there's the use of social media and mass communication, the ability to mobilize people very quickly. That's a, that's a new feature of civil disobedience or not so civil disobedience that you can, um, a large number of people can protest very, very quickly without warning the authorities, without um, sort of giving fair notice that they're about to engage in a protest. Uh, there's also the, the use of, of globalized protest. So you know, people in different countries opposing the same policy. You know, so so you know, the Occupy movement, you know, the, the protest against the Iraq war, people in very different places, very different circumstances coming in common cause against um, a policy. And then there's um, digital disobedience. And... Um, so, so that, you know, some of this 
takes interesting forms. When I, when I teach civil disobedience to my undergraduate students, they ask me, um, is, it, is it civilly disobedient to file share and to download movies? Um, and, and, I, and they're very disappointed when I tell them, well, if you're downloading it principally to watch it on a Saturday evening, then no, you haven't been civilly disobedient. If, however, you're doing it you know, with the idea of it being public, that you're trying to engage people in a debate about the merits of laws you know, prohibiting file sharing, if in some way you're willing to take some risks to expose yourself, then you know, your Saturday evening activity starts to have some credentials of being civilly disobedient. Um, and so, so that's the third piece, digital disobedience. And so you know, more, a more gra- graphic example, not necessarily a civil form of disobedience, um, but a graphic example comes from the, uh, the shooting of Michael Brown um, last August uh, by the Missouri police officer, I was Darren, Darren Wilson. The, um, the hacking group Anonymous, they threatened that they would tamper with the city's phone system, email system, internet system if the police harmed protesters. And then when police did start to threaten protesters, this group shut down the system, the, the city's, um, uh, in, in Ferguson, Missouri, they shut down the, the city's internet system. So you, you have very new types of, of protest, new types of disobedience. And then the, the final sort of new feature is that when people are engaging in civil disobedience, certainly the sort of the public demonstration form, that's now being recorded. You know, everyone's got a, a cell phone, and, and you know, the police, police use of force, police brutality, it's captured immediately, and then you know, it's up on YouTube and disseminated. And um, my own university, the Institute of Warwick, you know, it, um, it had a, a, an instance in last December where there were some students who were engaging in a sit-in, and the police were called because um, there was a reported assault on a security uh, staff member, and and what went up on YouTube was, was videos of how the police responded to this protest. And and you know you don't have the full context when you see the videos, but you do see police threatening students with with tasers, um, and with pepper spray. And and you see the student reaction, which is you know starts to become less civil. You know starts to become aggressive. There's use of expletives and threats um, against the police. But you know, this is suddenly a very different thing when everyone can, can look at what happened and can comment on it. So, so in the context of so these new types of disobedience, it's an exciting time to be thinking about the ethics of protest, the ethics of civil disobedience. And my, my own work on this topic, is, I, it's been my project for about 10 years. And um, when, I, when I published my book in 2012, I said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I've, I've said my piece, and, and I'm moving on. And, and, and I have moved on. I'm now looking at social human rights and the idea that we have a, a right against social deprivation. We should have a right to be um, in contact with people. But um, my, my work on civil disobedience, it started with a, a deep fascination with people who were willing to take the personal risks that go with civil disobedience. So I was, I was very captivated by people like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King Jr., like Aung San Suu Kyi, um, more recently someone like Edward Snowden, who were willing to, uh, who, who seemed to be very self-sacrificing, who had a deep commitment and conviction and were willing to give up citizenship rights, residency rights, um, freedom of movement. You know, the, the, there was something very captivating about these people. What did it take to have that strength of conviction 
and how should we view the behavior that follows from it. Um, and you know, just a you know, brief comment on Edward Snowden. He has pro- you know, he's, he's been protesting that he didn't want um, this to become about him. He didn't want the story to be about him. But it's not surprising that a good part of the story has become about him because we are, in a way, rightly fascinated with someone who's willing to, to you know, essentially forfeit their citizenship rights. You know, he, he can't return to the U.S. If he does, he'll... You know, he'll face very, very heavy penalties, and he won't be you know, given a trial where he can make a case publicly. So, so someone like that is, is a very interesting character for us. Um, and it was actually an interest in that, you know, it seemed to be these sort of embodiments of courage. Uh, that's what prompted me to pick a, a, a particular image for the cover of my book. And I just want to show you what the image is, um, if I can get it up. I'm a technomoron, I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, I may need help. I'm here. <laughs> I use a Mac. <laughs> um, so, so this picture is by Norman Rockwell, and um, it's called. So, some titles of it are the jury. Other titles are the holdout. And I, I'm hoping you can see it well enough. That um, we have a jury scene, and uh, the jury is made up of, of eleven men and one woman. And ten of the men are standing around the woman, and they're united against her. You can, you know, there's sort of this visible image, and she's alone. She, you know, but she's sitting with her back straight, her arms folded. She's, she's, you can, expression you can't see very well here, but she's, she's listening. She's not shut down um, to, to the, to them, but she's willing to be seen. She's exposed. She's alone. And she's the she's the holdout. She's dissenting. We don't know what the case is. Um, we don't know what the verdict is that they're debating. But we have someone who's who's willing to take those social risks of being a dissenter. And the thing that's so interesting is is not just the, the figure of the woman, but the eleventh man uh, who's sleeping. <laughs> so he he might agree with her, but he's not taking the risks of of exposing himself. He's not that embodiment of of conviction, and you know, because it's a Norman Rockwell painting, it's, prob- it's probably the case that she's right, you know, that she's, she has the right view of things, and indeed that eventually she's going to convince them and will have a uh, you know, very gratifying result um, come out. But, but uh, that picture of conviction, right or wrong, and she might be mistaken, um, that's what animated me when thinking about these, these uh, dissenters. Um, because there's, a, there's an interesting contrast between how she's perceived by her peers and how we perceive her looking at the picture. So by her peers, she's, she's being demonized. She's, she's, you know, she's rocking the boat. She's, she's not conforming. She's not going along with the accepted position. But from the outside, we find what she's doing quite, quite admirable. Um, even if we think she's wrong, we think there's something quite impressive about what she's doing. And that's true, I think, of our approach to civilly disobedient actors in general. Um, if you think of the lives of the great dissenters, people like Gandhi and King and Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi and Liao Xiaobo and Edward Snowden, their personal histories are pretty, pretty tough and tragic ones. You know, they... Um, you know, Gandhi was assassinated, King was assassinated, Mandela spent 27 years in prison, Aung San Suu Kyi spent close to 20 years under house arrest, Liao Xiaobo's serving an 11-year sentence um, in China, 
and Edward Stoneman fled the U.S. to Russia. So from their peers, they, they do not, you know, they are not, at least at the moment uh, that they're acting, they're not kindly viewed. But from the outside, uh, we find something very admirable about what they're doing. So, so that was, you know, the, in my mind when I was thinking about civil disobedience, and, and I'm going to flesh out uh, a defense of civil disobedience that, that plays on this, the value of conviction. Um, but before I get into that, I, I just want to say a little bit about what civil disobedience is and, and what it isn't. Um, civil disobedience, it is illegal, right? You are breaking the law. You are, you are engaging in a deliberate breach of law when you engage in civil disobedience. But it's a, civil, it's a disobedience of a very particular kind. You're engaging in a highly constrained breach of law. Uh, it's public. It's communicative. <coughs> You're trying to communicate your objection to a law, a policy, a system, and you're trying to convey a desire for lasting change. Now that, that picture, that little rough conceptualization of civil disobedience, that differs from a much narrower picture which we get from, from John Rawls, um, who in A Theory of Justice presented a very stringent, very narrow, demanding picture of what civil disobedience involves. Um, so for Rawls, civil disobedience is, is public, so you give fair notice to authorities, you tell them in advance that you're going to break the law. Uh, it's nonviolent. It's conscientious. It's done with a willingness to accept the legal consequences, so to accept the punishment, and it's done with a general fidelity to the legal system. So what's interesting about, about Rawls's picture of civil disobedience is that almost every person you can think of as a paradigm case of a civil disobedient won't count as one on his picture. So Rosa Parks, uh, 1955, she's in Montgomery, Alabama. She refuses to give up her bus seat in this segregated system where black people are expected to sit at the back. She won't give up her bus seat. That's not civil disobedient in Rawls's picture because she hasn't forewarned authorities. She didn't give fair notice that she was going to break the law. Gandhi is not a civil disobedient on Rawls's picture because Gandhi did not have fidelity to the legal system, British rule in India. Now, to be fair to Rawls and to Gandhi, Rawls was not thinking about you know, an oppressive... Uh, colonial regime, he was thinking about an, a nearly just society. But even so, if we require fidelity to the system as a requirement, Gandhi is not a civil disobedient. Nelson Mandela advocated constrained forms of violence. So again, Rawls's picture, it has to be nonviolent. Nelson Mandela was not engaged in civil disobedience. Um, Edward Snowden, he was unwilling to accept the punishment, um, quite, quite, right, quite rightly, given uh, what, what a trial and punishment might look like for him. But he, he did not display that civility the way Rawls is understanding it, the willingness to accept the punishment for your breach of law. So, so I think what comes out is that Rawls has given us a far, far too narrow picture of what we're talking about, and we should reject it. Um, you know, read other bits of Rawls. Don't look at what he has to say on civil disobedience. Um, but the, 
the thing I, I'd like to take away is that you know, we want our account of social experience to track these paradigm cases. People like Rosa Parks and Gandhi, they're, they're offering us a picture of sincere, committed, communicative, self-exposing civil disobedience, and we should frame our idea of what this practice is around those key examples. Okay, now civil disobedience is very different from another type of conscientious protest, uh, which is private, which is personal, which is non-communicative, which is sometimes evasive, so what's often called conscientious objection, this is the protest that doesn't try to engage people in a debate, doesn't try to change policy or change a system. So if you think of, you know, the, sort of the, you know we get the term conscientious objection, um, it sort of came into common language following the Boer War and then during the, the First World War, people refusing to participate in the barbarities of war, the conscientious objector. That's sort of where the, the term got going. But we also use it to talk about the, the doctor who refuses to perform abortions. Uh, we use it to talk about the, the nurse who refuses to shut off a patient's life support. Or the religious employee who refuses to uncover her hair. Um, or the religious employee who refuses to remove a cross. We use, it, we use conscientious objection when we're talking about the, the grocery store clerk who on religious grounds won't process the sale of alcohol or the pharmacist who refuses to dispense emergency contraceptive pills. So in a, in a whole range of cases, when, when someone sort of asserts you sort of privately, personally, this is beyond what I can do morally, we apply to that person the term conscientious objector, conscientious objection. Now, both of these practices, civil disobedience and personal or private content objection, in, in liberal thinking, they are both viewed as, as conscientious, as, as sincere. But there is a standard thought in liberal philosophy that of the two, it's the, the personal, private, modest acts of conviction that should be accommodated and tolerated, if possible. So, accommodation isn't always given. Um, you know, some of you may be familiar with the, the case of Lillian Liddell, who was a civil registrar um, in Islington, who refused on religious grounds to administer same-sex partnership ceremonies. And um, initially, an employment tribunal found in her favor that, she, that it would be discriminatory to require her to perform them, but ultimately, uh, a, a second tribunal and, and then a higher court deemed no, it was not discriminatory, this was a, a civil service um, and you couldn't refuse to perform it on religious grounds. But even though sometimes accommodation isn't given, there is a general inclination, pretty, pretty strong inclination in liberal societies to accommodate people who are privately objecting. There's no similar inclination to accommodate civilly disobedient actors on the basis that they are sincere and serious and conscientious. The attitude towards civil disobedience is more, you know, this is sometimes meritorious, it sometimes brings about a good result, 
but it's in general less worthy of protection because it's strategic. You're stepping outside the bounds of the law. You're improperly arrogating to yourself license to flout the law when other people are following <coughs> it. You're being undemocratic. So that is how the liberal picture tends to present the, the two types of, of, of conscientious protest. Um, civil disobedience comes with certain risks. It can inspire people who are less conscientious. Conscientious objection, because it's personal, it's private, we should try to respect it, we should try to tolerate it if we can. My view uh, is we should reverse that picture. That actually it's the people who engage in civil disobedience who have the better claim to the toleration that a liberal society tries to show to people who have a deep belief. And the, the reason I argue this is because conscientious conviction, the, the sincere commitment to a belief, takes more than a personal decision to act in ways that are in keeping with your morality. It takes at least three more things. First, it takes a universal judgment. So you have to view this act as wrong not only for you, but for anyone. So if you think it's wrong to eat meat, you have to think it's wrong, at least initially, for anyone to eat meat. Now, of course, there might be circumstances in which you know, it's a necessity, you know, that you, you might starve, your children might starve. If the, if the only way to feed yourself were to eat meat, then uh, that might override your view that it's, it's wrong. Same with performing abortions. If you think it's morally wrong to perform abortions, you have to think it's wrong not only for you to do it, but for any doctor to do it. But again, that's a, what, what philosophers call a protanto wrong. You believe it's wrong, but you recognize there may be conditions under which all things considered it would be all right to do it. So if someone were a victim of rape or incest, um, if someone were underage, uh, if, if someone's life were at risk. Um, but you still have this universal position. That's the, start, that's the first piece of being sincere in your belief. The next piece, in my view, is that you are non-evasive. So you don't try to evade the consequences of holding your belief. You are willing to be seen. And that, I think, is what's so admirable about um, the, the woman in the jury scene a Gandhi-like character who can say with, with credibility, my life is my message. Um, you know, the, the, the people that we revere, these great dissenters, part of why we revere them is they're willing to be seen. They don't try to evade the costs of their belief. And sometimes when people act privately to act in the way they think is right, they actually act in ways that are intended to maintain the secrecy of the act. Uh, or indeed, they will adjust their behavior so that it goes undetected. So you know, it would be, it'd be a civil registrar just swapping assignments with a colleague so she didn't have to perform civil partnership ceremonies, or a nurse swapping jobs with a colleague so she didn't have to be, take part in 
the performing of abortions. Or someone practicing their religion in secret and in fact adjusting the practices so that they didn't become detected. That evasiveness starts to look like you're more committed to preserving your, your own skin than honoring the commitment. Now, I've been pushed on this. Some people have said, well, you know, suppose you're facing an existential threat. If you're trying to practice your religion um, and your religion's banned, you know, it's a very heavy price to say you have to do this in a, you know, in a non-invasive, potentially public way. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm torn between two responses. One is to say that, you know, yes, if you face an existential threat, then it's understandable that you're going to use evasive measures in order to act as you see, right, as, as you see fit. The other response, though, is, is to say that you know, what really demonstrates a commitment to a conviction is that self-sacrifice, that willingness to face the biggest risks that come with staying true to a belief. Okay, so that's the, that's, uh, we've got two pieces. Uh, we've got a universal judgment and we've got non-evasion. The, the last piece of sincere belief, in my view, is communicativeness, dialogic effort. So someone who sincerely believes something tries to engage people in deliberation, tries to persuade people that there are good reasons to believe what she believes. And two things happen when you do that. One is you show that you think your view is sufficiently credible that you can give a reasoned argument for it. And the other is that you think that argument is worth making such that you're willing to bear the risks of making it. So, so this, all that package, uh, I've labeled the communicative principle of conscientiousness. Philosophers mm-hmm. try and, you know, it's hard to remember all the bits, so you stick a label on something. Um, and... What I think that does, that, that picture of conscientiousness, it, it shows why a liberal society actually should make a lot of space where it can for people to engage in civil disobedience. Because it's the civilly disobedient person who is willing to be seen, who is trying to engage people in dialogue, uh, who is not evading the cost of her belief. And so, so with that starting point, I then, in, in, in the book, I make two arguments for civil disobedience. Uh, the first is the conviction argument, and the second is the conscience argument. And what I think these two arguments do, I'll, I'll flesh out what they, what they are in a second, they give us two legal defenses, two places we can point to for the law to take us seriously and not punish us when we engage in civil disobedience. So I'll I'll start with the conviction argument. Um, Essentially, the conviction argument is, it takes this idea of the, the communicativeness of deep belief and it says from this we can actually get a moral right to engage in civil disobedience. Um, and we can get a moral right even in a democracy. And, and that's, um, that's a controversial thought amongst philosophers. So some philosophers say you know, that just, there isn't a moral right to engage in civil disobedience. 
some philosophers say there is a right, but not in a democracy. So, so Joseph Raz, um, who is one of the big contributors to debates about civil disobedience in the, in the 1970s in, the, in his book, The Authority of Law, he argues that if our society is illiberal, if it doesn't actually give everyone full participation rights, then you have a right to engage in civil disobedience because you have a right to reclaim the participation rights that your state isn't recognizing. So in the United States, um, sort of pre-civil rights era, uh, you know, when Rosa Parks was trying to um, you know, refuse to give up her bus seat, black people had a moral right to engage in civil disobedience because they did not have fully recognized equal participation rights. Um, so in illiberal societies like Myanmar, Burma, um, you know, like, like China, uh, you can say, I have a right to use civil disobedience because there are participation rights that should be legal for me, but the state isn't recognizing them. And Raz says that's where it ends. Uh, there's no moral right to use civil disobedience here. You know, if, if we think the UK is liberal, you know, we could debate that. Um, but if we think this is a liberal society, then there's no moral right to use civil disobedience. Now, and, and I'll just give you the, the reason. The reason is that we have the ordinary channels of participation. Um, if we were to use civil disobedience, if we were to say, I have a right to use civil disobedience, we would be saying, this act is something the state should make legal. This act should be part of my legal participation rights. And Raz says you can't make that argument when you have adequate, ordinary participation channels. There's no channel that you could say should be part of your legal rights. Now, there are two problems with Raz's view. The first is in those illiberal societies, there's no right to act in solidarity in civil disobedience. So if, you're, if you were a white person who agreed that it's abominable that black people don't have full recognition of their legal and political status, you would have no moral right to engage in civil disobedience because your participation rights aren't under threat. You have nothing to reclaim. And that seems counterintuitive, that you wouldn't have a right to march along uh, or to participate in breaches of segregation laws as a white person who believed black people should have full participation rights. The second problem is that Raz, he makes a mistake when he assumes that in a liberal society, when you engage in civil disobedience, you're saying this act should be part of my legal participation rights. You don't have to be saying that. You might be saying instead, I realize votes have to be taken, I realize decisions have to be made, but as a member of the minority, I have a smaller microphone. I'm going to have a harder time getting my view on the table. And therefore, there needs to be some space for me to step outside the law, to do something slightly more radical. I need a slightly wider sphere of participation activity, potential, if I'm going to join the conversation about policy. So this idea comes from David Lefkowitz, and essentially it's, it's making up for the bad luck of being in the minority. 
that what you're doing when you engage in civil disobedience is you're responding to the operational realities of politics, of being in the minority. You're not saying this act should be legal. You're saying, I need a bit more leeway because I'm in the minority. Now, I think think Raz actually roots the moral right to experience in the wrong place. It's not participation rights. It's deep personal conviction. It's out of a, a respect for people that we offer them, that we should offer them, a more right to engage in highly constrained communicative breach of law in defense of a belief. And, and so the, you know, the, the liberal desire to honor conviction, which is what prompts us to accommodate doctors who refuse to abor- uh, perform abortions, prompts us to accommodate conjures objectors to war, that liberal inclination is what should prompt us to make space for people to engage in civil disobedience. It's a humanistic respect for the fact that we are capable of deep belief. And having deep belief actually has an expressive quality. You want to be able to act on it. You want to be able to be seen, you know, to, to hold your view. You want to be able to be like the woman in the jury room who can hold out, who has some space to make her case publicly. And so what happens is society puts too much pressure on us when it asks us only to engage in surreptitious or private breaches of law to honor our beliefs. And society puts too much pressure on us when it requires us always to put the law first. There needs to be some small space to engage in community breach of law in defense of a cause. Now, there are a couple of things that follow from this. One is um, it gives us the basis for a legal defense. It gives us the basis for a legal excuse, what I've called the demands of conviction excuse, that if we want to respect people as expressive beings, if we want to respect autonomy if we value independent judgment, then we need to have an excuse people can give ground in their conviction when they breach the law. The other thing that comes out is is, um, sort of a qualifier on that. It's in saying there's a moral right to civil disobedience, um, I'm actually saying this is true for, for anyone, no matter what their cause is. So if you're a neo-Nazi, if you're a staunch anti-abortion defender, if you're a U.S. Second Amendment defender, uh, if you're an animal rights activist, if you're an environmentalist, if you're a pacifist, whatever your cause is, that's irrelevant to this moral right. Because this moral right is premised on respecting your capacity to have deep beliefs. It doesn't require you to have beliefs that we think are credible. And so, so in, in, you know, in arguing that there's this moral right to engage in civil disobedience, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't distinguish the, the, sort of the wise dissenters from the xenophobes, the bigots, the, the people we think you know, really we'd rather not make some space uh, for them to engage in breach of law. 
I think if we take conscien- sorry, conscientious belief seriously, we have to make that space for everyone, no matter what their cause is. Okay, so that's the conviction argument. For the wise dissenters, the people uh, like Gandhi, like King, like Aung San Suu who you know, I would argue have sort of got it right, I'd actually I'd put Edward Snowden in that camp as well, people who are actually defending something morally important um, that we should agree is morally important, they have a stronger case they can make for what they're doing. They can use the language of conscience, not just conviction, not just belief, but conscience. Um, and you know, conscience is it, it, a term that you know, can sort of be co-opted you know, by different camps to mean different things. But um, you know, we have this idea that conscience actually means objective moral understanding. Uh, you know, we, have, we have language like a clear conscience, a demand of conscience, answering to conscience. Um, you know, that we use conscience sometimes to mean sort of the angel on the shoulder or even the voice of God, that you, you've understood something morally when you can use the language of conscience. Now, to my mind, morality is too complicated. You know, li- life's actually pretty tragic. We're going to act wrongly a lot of the time. We, we can't claim to have got you know, the voice of God uh, you know, channeled into us when we're trying to act. But we can... We can cultivate an understanding of how a better and worse ways to be. Um, and there's a there's a nice literature actually outside philosophy uh, in contemplative neuroscience, which argues that the, the, the people who cultivate certain moral virtues practically, uh, like compassion and kindness and generosity, that they actually have a better understanding of how their own bodies are functioning and they have a more accurate perception of their experience. Um, So there's a lot of studies that are done on long-term meditators, mostly Buddhist monks. And the evidence is that these monks who are deeply compassionate, who spend a lot of their time cultivating practically compassion and kindness, they have more accurate memories of their experiences, they have very accurate perceptions of other people's feelings, they're, they're more in tune with what's actually going on in their experience. So, so conscience, as I'm understanding it, is that it's, it's self-understanding, it's self-knowledge, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with the cultivation of some practical moral skills. Um, and this also ties in quite nicely with how we understand the activities of people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and Aung San Suu Kyi, that they were animated by a very deep, pervasive commitment to nonviolence as a moral attitude. They didn't hate their oppressors. They actually professed, in, in Gandhi's case, they professed love for their oppressors, uh, that they, they felt benevolent toward them. They were trying to oppose their policies, but they didn't have an attitude of hatred toward them. So, so when someone's cultivated a genuine moral understanding, a degree of conscience, that will hopefully prompt them to put moral responsibilities ahead of formal, formal expectations, ahead of the law. Um, and, and so I think you know, you could, there, there are examples where this, is, where this has happened, um, and examples where it hasn't. So one example where it didn't happen, uh, this, one, this one I talk about in, in the book, it was a case of 
here in the UK um, about eight years ago, there were uh, two community support officers who saw a child who was drowning in a pond. And the community support officers didn't jump in to rescue the child. They followed proper procedure, which was to radio for a trained crew to come to the scene. And, you know, of course, in the interim, the child, the child died. And they were praised by their superior for following proper procedure. But they were rightly censured by the media, by UK, um, in the UK commentators, and indeed by um, former Home Secretary David Blunkett, who, who said, this is a case where the natural, reasonable thing to do is to save the child, never mind the job. And in fact, I would, I would say something a little stronger, that, you know, that not only was it a case where the, the, sort of the natural human response would be, should be, to save the child, never mind the job, but actually community support officers, the underlying moral roles that make their office legitimate are roles about caring and supporting and protecting the, the local community. So, so they actually had special responsibilities to try and rescue the child, never mind the rule book. So I think that's one place where you know, conscience wasn't present. It didn't trigger and, and animate the right response. Um, by contrast, uh, in the United States, um, another example, another case that uh, I find very interesting is how doctors have responded to the requirement or the request that they oversee executions by lethal injection. In several U.S. states, doctors who are there to not just ob observe, but actually to intervene if the person wakes up, um, partly to prevent suffering, doctors have refused to perform that role on the grounds that it's inconsistent with their fundamental roles as healers and carers. And indeed, doctors who are, are supervising other doctors, uh, doctors who are ensuring that the right drugs come to the prisons in order to perform these functions, both those supervisors and doctors who would oversee the, the executions have refused to perform that function. And there, I think, th those are examples where conscience did animate the right decision. Now, one problem with saying this is, you know, in liberal, liberal societies, we almost you know, excessively are sensitive to competing views about the right way to live, the right policies to have. Um, and so when you say you know, this was a morally decent act and that one was, was not, you're, you're jumping over that. You, you, you know, I am making some positive claims about what the morally right thing to do is. But I think you can find some... We can find some pointers for when we are in morally urgent situations where we should step outside the law. Um, and I'll give, give two, two arguments here. The first is to look at the realm of need, basic human need. So we can look at international agreements like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, you know, our brute survival needs, our needs for, you know, for food, 
water, shelter, breathable air, our humanistic needs for some political recognition, respect, social inclusion. You can start to flesh out a picture of moral urgency based on human need. And indeed, need isn't just a human concept. You, know, you, can, you can extend needs to, to animals, to, uh, to other sentient beings. And when those things are at risk, then it's time to think we maybe should step outside the law to protect them. The other argument, is, it comes from uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, who says we should think about what future generations might condemn us for doing. He, he says um, in, his, in his book, Honor Code, he looks at different practices that disappeared within a generation because the society started to think this is actually dishonorable. This is something we shouldn't want to be seen doing. So his examples were Chinese foot binding and um, dueling in Britain. And uh, both practices <coughs> actually died out very quickly when they did die out. You know, so Chinese foot binding, binding the foot of, of young girls, so you know, the bones break, you end up with this beautiful, beautiful sort of lotus petal foot, you know, but some girls get gangrene, some girls die. It's an incredibly torturous thing to do to a little girl. Um, long-standing practice, which then died out, according to Apia, within a generation, because it came to be seen as a stain on the national honor of China. Same, he says, with dueling in England, that it was outlawed for over two centuries before it actually died out as a practice. And when it did die out as a practice, it was because aristocrats suddenly seemed ridiculous uh, to be doing this. You know, this sort of something that's from the beginning of the 1800s, you know, you had to do to stand on your honor. By 1850, <laughs> no, thank you. you know, it was just not an acceptable way to, to be honorable. And that was partly because not only aristocrats were doing it by the 1850s, but also, it wasn't only aristocratic attitudes that mattered. You know, there was a push for democratic, a democratic shift in, in attitudes, which made this practice no longer honorable. So, so Appiah says, you know, let's look at things we're doing and see whether future generations might condemn us for this behavior. And he says, we have three ways of, or three signs that they might. One is that the arguments against the practice are already known. And you know, so if, we, if we think about you know, NSA and GCHQ, massive surveillance programs, the arguments against that kind of collect all the data, invade everyone's privacy, they're well-known arguments not to do that. The second is that people who defend the practices tend not to give moral arguments for why we should do it. Uh, you know, Apia talks about slavery, and, and he says the arguments made for maintaining slavery in the United States, they were not moral arguments, they were arguments like we have to do this to maintain our way of life, it's a matter of necessity, it's, it's a tradition, this is most efficacious, most economical. It was those kinds of arguments, not this is the morally right thing to do. And then the third argument is that the defenders of such practices, and, and you know, we know none, none of us are innocent necessarily, we engage in strategic ignorance. We try not to think about the fact we might be complicit. And so, you know, Apia is talking about our abuse of the environment, you know, we all take flights, we use resources, we drive cars everywhere. You know, that we strategically don't think about the ways in which we are complicit or party to wrongs. And so he says if we look at those three signs, we, this can help to identify when we have a morally urgent situation where we should be willing to 
step outside the law. Now, I argue that when we are in those environments of moral urgency, when we can talk about a conscience argument for civil disobedience, then you can actually make a legal defense of necessity. Um, and what's interesting, I'll, uh, I hope I haven't talked for far too long. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll finish, it, finish it up very quickly. What's interesting is if you look at um, how civil disobedient actors are treated by, uh, by judges and by juries, um, they actually have an incredibly difficult time making a necessity argument. Um, and it was fun when I, when I started to explore this to, to see that actually it wasn't so much a problem with civil disobedience, it was a problem with the necessity argument, that common law really struggles to recognize necessity as a defense for breach of law. Um, so I'll, just, I'll, I'll finish by giving you some quotes on how different judges view civil disobedience and, uh, and which ones I think have got it right. Um, so, so you'll find three views amongst judges about civil disobedience. Some judges think it's just like ordinary offending. So if you engage in criminal, criminal trespass for a protest, that's exactly the same as engaging in criminal trespass for whatever motive you, know, you, you might have. It's, it's an ordinary offense. Other judges, um, and actually I'll just give you a quote on one, one judge who took that view. So this is um, from the former British Columbia Court of Appeal Chief Justice, Justice McEachran, in a case that was called R.V. Bridges. Um, and this was, uh, he was, the, um, the defendant had engaged in picketing and trespass and, and in intimidation against the users uh, and employees of an abortion clinic. And the judge said, civil disobedience is a philosophical, not a legal principle. Even philosophers agree that those who disobey any law, by civil disobedience or otherwise, must expect to be punished according to law. Civil disobedience is not a defense for any willful breach of law. Um, so either I'm not a philosopher, uh, or he hasn't, you know, there, there are a few of us who don't fit his quote. But that thought is it's just like ordinary offending. It's, you know, philosophers can debate its merits, but it shouldn't make any difference to how judges look at civil disobedience. A second view you'll find with judges is some judges think this is more serious than ordinary offending. That if you engage in civil disobedience, you are deliberately flouting the law. You are actually a social threat. In a democracy, you are giving yourself a permission that other people are not giving themselves to break the law. Um, and here are two judges who, who thought this. One was a Texas trial court judge. His name was Judge Tate. And he adopted just an anti-civil anti disobedience stance uh, it didn't matter what the, what the cause was. So uh, one of the people who came before him was a, um, an animal rights activist named Megan Lewis, and she had been blocking the entrance to a Neiman Marcus store to protest the fur industry, and Judge Tate ordered her to stay away from animal rights protests, um, legal or illegal. You know, forget about U.S. freedom of speech. She wasn't allowed to be near, near animal rights protests. And uh, the Texas Observer, a reporter named Will Potter, was commenting on the case, and he said that Judge Tate, um, uh, he, he pointed out that Megan Lewis had been involved in nonviolent civil disobedience uh, in front of an Neiman Marcus store before, and he used the sentence to make sure that she wouldn't be back doing the same thing again. Sentencing an activist to stay away from protests, Tate said, 
is no different from sentencing a drunk driver to stay away from bars or sentencing a pedophile to stay away from schoolyards. So, so that thought, you know, that you know, free speech rights are on a par with um, pedophilia and drunk driving, you know, quite a strong condemnation of, of free speech. The other case where, where the judge seemed to take the view that civil disobedience is more serious than ordinary offending, this was a, um, an appeal court case U.S. Tenth Circuit Court of Appeal. Uh, the case was three nuns who'd engaged in trespass and vandalism of a military base in Colorado. They were trying to protest the U.S. U.S. Um, activities in Iraq, as well as um, highlight the presence of weapons of mass destruction. And they were sentenced to 41 months, 33 months, and 30 months imprisonment, respectively. And Justice Hart, speaking for the court, said, "Civil disobedience can be an act of great religious and moral courage." and society may ultimately benefit. But if the law being violated is constitutional, the worthiness of one's motives cannot excuse the violation in the eyes of the law. History has not been short of the evidence of the risks, the evils, that can attend subordinating the requirements of law to one's personal view of morality. Okay, so those judges think this is actually more serious than ordinary offending. The last group of judges, and I, I'm always happy when I find more of these judges, they think civil disobedience is less serious. They think civil disobedience is actually quite special. Um, and so this one comes, there's two examples I've got for this. Maine Superior Court Judge Alan Hunter, again, it was a, um, protesters who were challenging the Iraq War. They engaged in a sit-in in the federal building uh, in Bangor, Maine. And Justice uh, Judge Hunter he rejected the prosecution's call for heavy fines and instead gave them some community service. And he said as follows, I remember that in the 1960s and 70s, there were actions of civil disobedience that eventually made our lives better. We've all derived benefits from acts of civil disobedience, like the Boston Tea Party. That act of civil disobedience has played an extremely important and vital political role in our history. From time to time in our history, we see events that involve civil disobedience that make us uncomfortable. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. And then the other case um, was a, uh, where the, the judge was very positive towards civil disobedience. This was a case here in the UK um, about six years ago. There were some environmentalists who were planning. They didn't actually get as far as carrying out their plans. They were planning to trespass um, and engage in vandalism at the, the Radcliffe uh, power station, and um, the jury found them, found them guilty, and the judge um, imposed very lenient sentences, ranging from 18 months conditional discharge to 90 hours of community service, and he praised their characters. He said, um, although the public might think his sentencing was impossibly lenient, he'd been put in a unique position, given the moral standing of the campaigners. Whom he, whom he believed were decent men and women with a genuine concern for others and for the survival of the planet. And it's those judges I find most admirable because they're trying to soften the blow of the law. The law is a clunky, rigid thing. It's hard for it to be accommodating of civil disobedience. But it's really nice when you find judges who can, uh, who can do that. And I'll just close with a quote by Emmeline Pankhurst, which I think captures what civilly disobedient actors are trying to do. She says, we are here not because we're lawbreakers. We're here in our efforts to become lawmakers. Okay.
do you want to stay there or come here? Um, uh, I'll, I'll stay here. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my perch. <laughs> uh, so, uh, questions? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Kim. So, one Yes. Uh, all right. Um, so I was just wondering, I, I thought there might be some, some paradox in the idea of civil disobedience for the following reason. So you're advocating giving greater space uh, to civilly disobedient agents, which I understood to be uh, being more lenient uh, towards them when they're being tried. Mm. But on the other hand, what makes the civilly disobedient agent particularly admirable mm. is precisely the fact that they are willing to take on really great risks Mm. Um, on the basis of their conscience and their conviction. But if we were to institute a system whereby um, engaging in these kind of ended up not being so so risky and demanding, then I wonder whether, in a way, we would be depriving the Mm. act of civil disobedience of what makes it special and in turn seems to justify uh, a request for softer uh, approach from the on the part of the legal system. Great, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so, a, a colleague of mine, Mark Mark Reef, he worked for a U.S. judge during um, uh, the later years of the Vietnam War, and he, he said the judge deliberately imposed harsh penalties <laughs> on conscientious objectors and civil disobedience to show he took them seriously. Say, like, I honor you. You're going to get the full force of the law. <laughs> um, so, I, I think. I, you know, I, I take your point. Um, what I think it, it, it shows, like, there is strategic value in being punished. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. highlights this. You know, if you punish me, in, in a way you make me a martyr, you raise the profile of my cause. Um, and, and so the, the willingness to bear that risk of being punished, you might say, okay, yeah, that, that sort of that potent communication of conviction will be lost if we start to you know, grant these legal, legal defenses, if we, if we don't punish... Um, I'm, I'm torn because in, in one sense you, you, even if you don't face the full force of the law you face so, your social censure you know, being, a, being a dissenter being someone you know, unless you're sort of immune to the wider community uh, if you're surrounded by people who, who agree with you you may not feel it fully but when you step outside the law you, you change how people perceive you so even if the only censure you, you would you know, like, you like to experience is a social one that can be that can be still fairly potent. Being a dissenter is a not a comfortable position to be in. Um, I think the other thing I'd, I'd say is that the people who are going to be able to make these defenses, if, you know, if indeed you know, they, they they could be made, um, and and you know, I've so so I, sh- I should just add a footnote that uh, the idea of a, a demands of conviction defense. Um, Jeremy Horder, who was the law you know the law commissioner. Here. He wrote a, a book called Excusing Crime where he talks about demands of belief. Uh, he doesn't think it works for civil disobedience, but he does think we should have this as a recognized defense. So it's not wholly, you know, this is the philosophical's dream to say that we should have this recognized in law. But the people who are going to make these defenses will be a fairly small subset of the people who would be engaging in civil disobedience. That you would have to, you'd probably have to fit sort of the Rawlsian paradigm of a fair notice non-violent, you know, sort of barely putting your toe outside the law in order to say that, you know, the law should actually accommodate this. Because, well, I think the law can recognize that there are other values we have. It's not, you know, that the law doesn't have to have primacy. Um, it, it's going to be, yeah, a fairly small set of acts where, where the judge is going to feel confident to take that step. And, you know, and so the, the environmentalist case, 
you know, it's probably because they only got to the planning stage that he was able to say these are courageous people who, you know, these admirable moral <laughs> characters, and you know, there wasn't a window broken yet, you know, which is why he was at liberty to do that. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the potency of punishment, there'll still be more than enough people getting that. Yeah. Yes. Um, some 20 years ago in this country, um, there was a huge road building program which many people objected to because it ruined the countryside, created noise, pollution, etc. Now, at the same time, the government introduced something called this, this, the um, Criminal Justice Act, which I understand um, effectively criminalised peaceful protest. Um, and also it, it criminalised any assemblies of more than 20 people. And it gave the police certain powers, um, which as far as I know they didn't previously have, but they could actually round up anybody they took a dislike to, even people who, who might be standing still holding up a placard. Mm. You know, you could be seen as a criminal. Mm. Now, I, I wasn't... You know, I wasn't aware of all that, so I, don't, I can only speak about what I've just said. Um, but it seemed to me the law at that time was very harsh and very cynical. And a friend of mine said, well, you know what's behind it. It's the Department for Transport. Mm -hmm. They want to build all these roads everywhere because they like cars and road building is very lucrative. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't care less about the man in the street. And in fact, it was the man in the street who was protesting and ending up getting arrested mm -hmm. yeah no it's um, there's, there's a a very important debate to be had about the parameters for for legal participation for legal demonstrations and you know, limits on the number of people who can congregate um, be it 20 people or 50 people curfews you, know, you can't protest you know, after 10 p.m. or before 6. Um, you know, in, in Montreal, there was, you couldn't protest within 50 meters of a university building um, because it was students that they were, you know, whose protests they were trying to shut down. Uh, you can't wear a face covering when you're protesting. Um, you know, even to the point you have to tell the police in advance where you're going to be and for how long and how many people. You know, so all of those in themselves... You can might make a case for legitimate kinds of restrictions. They add up to a pretty substantial limitation on legal participation. Um, what's interesting is, uh, you know, sort of when when police start to use certain types of responses. Um, so when you know the pepper spray comes out, when the the taser comes out and is you know, is threatened the police have deemed that then to be an illegal protest. You know, suddenly the, the dynamics have changed according to... And police act, you know, that, that, that's one way of making an act legal or illegal is that you know, police take a stance on it. And uh, you know, just as a traffic cop telling you to go that way, if you go that way, you've suddenly broken the law. Um, and you know, again, there's sort of this question of, okay, even if we've now stepped outside the law, what is the legitimate scope for participation? Um, and... And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, we kind of forget the fundamental sort of long-term importance of 
discussion and debate when in the name of efficiency, in the name of getting the roads built or you know, getting the, the new development set up, we, we sacrifice more underlying fundamental commitments to, to free speech and dialogue. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Millian at heart. John Stuart Mill was, was right when he emphasized the, the progressive value of debate. Uh, and I think that's, that's one reason why I argue the moral rights of Spians has to be applicable no matter what your cause is, because we actually benefit when we let people whose views we don't like have some space to communicate their position. So, and you know, politicians can be very short-sighted. They don't want to think about, you know, ten years down the line or sort of the, the long-term health of the democratic, you know, deliberative forum. There's, you know, what's going to get you re-elected, and and that can that can often mean you know, stepping on basic rights. Um, so I, I don't have a, a clean answer for you, but I, I certainly appreciate your point. Hey, um, so the picture you painted presents. It, it puts a lot of emphasis on the communicative side of civil disobedience. So by breaking the law, you stake out your position and you attempt to convince others through your sincerity, your taking of risks. You try and convince them that you're correct. But I wonder, where does the role of disruption and coercion, which is also part of civil disobedience, fit into the picture? Because the paradigm cases you mentioned, Marathon, Nathan King and Gandhi... Martin Luther King talked about trying to force a crisis of the system to fill the jails, to provoke a crisis, essentially, to try and attach a cost to the continuation of segregation. Likewise with Gandhi, his was an economic strategy based on hurting the interests of the British through strikes and boycotts. And that's not just those paradigm cases. I mean, one of the things that that explains, if we talk about the coercive nature of it, is why commit disobedience at all? Why break the law at all rather than simply communicate in a dramatic way? So what, what, what is the role of coercion in your picture? Is it just to get attention or can it have a legitimate role to play in actually f- forcing a reversal in policy? Yeah, yeah no, thank you for the question. Um, so yeah, the, the coercive pressure of a protest, uh, it, it um, you know, can be a... Can be a piece of civil disobedience, it can also be a piece of um, uncivil obedience. So there's a, there's a paper forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review that argues that one way to effectively challenge a law is to adhere to it as literally as possible. So it's, the paper starts with a case, um, and, and I only have the paper, I don't know about this case otherwise, but in California, apparently some motorists wanted to challenge um, the speed limit, it was 55 miles per hour or whatever, and so they went on the freeway and, and you know, religiously followed the 55, you know, drove everybody crazy following the law, you know, and did a lot of disruption. So, so you know, it's, it's a tr- is a tricky part of any protest because you know, you, you to Claim credibly that you are trying to make a reasoned case for changing positions, changing policies. You have to be able to distinguish yourself from more radical actors, from people who are really trying to use force, trying to use more radical violence, trying to use uh, coercion in its core, pure sense, to achieve their results. Um, people are trying to use terrorism to achieve the results. So you, you need to be visibly distinct from them. 
and yet you're, you're right that um, you know those paradigm cases I cited they were you know part of their story was an appeal to to the legitimacy of their cause and to the good reasons that one could give but there was also really trying to force the hand of government and um, yeah, there's a there's a nice uh, I think possibly apocryphal but there's a nice story about FDR uh, soon after he came into office that he met with some labor leaders and said to them, I agree with you, now go out and make me do it. Um, yeah, the idea of you as a politician, you almost have to have your hand forced in order for you to acknowledge those legitimate reasons. So I think the coerciveness, there's, sort of, there's a place for it as a, a way of getting your voice heard, getting your topic onto the table. Um, but it still has to be checked. It still has to be sufficiently constrained that you won't you won't undermine the moral quality uh, by by becoming too radical in your approach. Um. You've got the mic. Yep. Yeah. Uh, thank you. First of all, well, my question is: you said at one point that we must respect the moral rights to deep beliefs. And my question is, what is one deep belief is against one's uh, right, let's say, to life? For instance, uh, neo-Nazis believe that a certain group of people should not be somewhere. They do have moral rights, they do believe that uh, what uh, they're doing is for the benefit of all mankind, they do believe it. But uh, I believe it's safe to say that it's not. What's your opinion on yeah. that type of civil disobedience? Yeah. So, so my view limits civil disobedience in terms of the kinds of acts you can take in defense of your belief. It's only very constrained breaches of law that you can engage in. So if you're an anti-abortion activist, you cannot you know, bomb abortion clinics and claim it's civil disobedience. Uh, if you're a neo-Nazi, you cannot engage in, in violence against Jewish people and claim it's civil disobedience. You can have these extreme views, but to claim it's civil disobedient when you're defending them, uh, you have to be engaging in much more modest, constrained types of conduct. And, and you know, the civility, you know, the qualifier civility, in, in my sense, that's your operating principally at the level of reason. You're trying to engage people in deliberation. You're trying to show people that there are reasons to hold the view you hold. Um, and, and so you know, there's a bit of a, there's a tension here because you know, so liberal society, it, it struggles forever to be tolerant of the intolerant. Um, but, but that is sort of its, its driving paradoxical the commitment that it's, it's willing to make space for people who have intolerant views to, to voice them. Does that answer you? When a, when a society becomes a threat to its own existence, then we seem to have a democratic, we seem to have an anti-democratic duty to protest. The obvious example is when rich nations in the northern hemisphere threaten the environment of tropical, tropical countries as for example in sea level rise 
threatening the, the existence of Pacific Islands and, and, and various other environmental crises that we are currently going through which are a direct consequence of Western people's greed in, in carbon emissions. So Western culture as it currently stands is a direct threat. So we, we, we would seem to have a, a, an anti-democratic duty to protest in that, in that case. centers on conscience and I haven't read your book so I don't know if you agree with me but mostly, I mean many 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 years ago I wrote a paper on the fact that what your conscience tells you isn't necessarily what's morally right and you hinted at that when you talked about Nazi views and anti-abortionists and some of these other people who you clearly don't agree with from a moral point of view. Now, a lot of people do um, maintain that they're acting on their conscience. They may, it may be for some weird religious reason or some very, very peculiar reason, but they are not necessarily doing anything in the public good, and I think words like, expressions like the public good and the general benefit of uh, the society in general is what morality is all about. Um, you know, But so um, it seemed to me quite clear that if people are um, making protests um, and involving civil disobedience, breaking the law in some way, providing they don't hurt other people, and they are doing it for reasons which actually do 
um, coincide with the general good, or mm. what we would call morality, mm. then it's fairly clear, I think, that um, it should be allowed. Mm. I don't know about these judges, but uh, how do you cope with that when you find that on the whole, um, people, as we've quoted certain people, they are not uh, regarded as doing something in the public interest? Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for the question. So I think, um, yeah, pe people can help themselves too readily to the term conscience. Um, and the, the thing I, I'm, I'm keen to argue is that conscience is something we cultivate. It's not something we can assert we have and then use as a shield against regulation or reproof. <coughs> it's, it's something you, it's a title you earn. Um, you know, Maya Angelou, she, she, when asked if she was a Christian, and she said, well, not yet, but I'm trying. <laughs> so so you, 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 you work toward being able to earn the, the label that you, you, know, you are acting in the name of conscience. You have, you have a conscience. Um, so, so and, and there's, a, there's a difficulty in saying that because, first of all, you know, much, of the, in, you know, the, much of the law, much of you know, sort of international agreements about protection of conviction, it is framed language of conscience in this descriptive sense of you know, the sense I think we should avoid. And you know, if you look at the Declaration of Human Rights, there, uh, you know, Article 18 says you have, you have a right to you know, freedom of, of belief, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, and freedom of religion. And, and I think that language should be freedom of thought, freedom of conviction, um, and freedom of religion. And, and actually, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is, is um, a bit quirky because in other parts of the document, it uses conscience in the sense that I want to use it. So at the beginning, it says, you know, there have been acts of, of atro you know, atrocious acts that have offended the conscience of humanity. Um, and, and then in Article One, it says we have we human beings we have rationality and conscience and are capable of acting in the spirit of you know, fraternity and brotherhood to each other. So. So, you know, the document is trying to have it both ways. That sort of, you know, it's conscience in this, this sense we have to earn that is animating you know, these rights, making sense of these rights, but then it's conscience in the sense of just, you know, deep belief, whatever it might be, that is then deemed to be protected by right. So, so that, you know, that reductionist, relativistic, um, you sort of quirky, whatever my group or my... You know, even just me on my own, whatever I think most deeply, that earns the term conscience, earns the conscience. Um, I really want to, to avoid that. And the reason it's, it's tricky, uh, you know, not just that the international agreements um, make it tricky, but also linguistically it's tricky. Because conscience um, and conscientious conviction, you know, they, they have the same etymological source. You know, they're, they're, they're cognate terms. And so, you know, as a philosopher, I'm trying to pull them apart and say, well, we can talk about your conviction, your conscientious conviction, but that's a very different thing from being able to claim conscience. Um, and and uh, you, sort of, you sort of know you've made a conceptual distinction that's really difficult to make sense of when, um, so, you know, I've, I've sort of been taught, you know, it's lovely when people review, review your books, but... Uh, I've read two reviews and thought, oh no, you know, it has completely butchered the, con the contrast and oh, I haven't done a good job of making, making this clear. But you know, philosophers, there are other terms we've really tried to pull apart that are naturally brought together. One is right and rights. 
So doing right is a very different thing from having a right. If you have a right, you know, like free speech, that protects you when you want to say things that are offensive and harmful. Um, you know, things are not right. But these two terms, you know, our inclination is to use them together. So um, I think if I were to rewrite the book, I would probably drop the language of conscientiousness at all and just say there's conviction over here, there's conscience over there. Um, you have to do a lot of work before you can claim you've got that. I'd like to read your paper, darling. Do you have a question? I guess the judge question is, how do you talk about punishment? How does someone with conviction, they react to the punishment, give them by the law? And, yeah. How is someone with conviction react? Yeah, well, she's like civil disobedience. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
the types of people that hold deep beliefs? Was there like a common sort of backstory or personality type or something like that that was that ran through them all? So, so that's that's a really interesting question, um, and I, I think so, so. So one thing that's interesting is that many of those people assert their ordinariness. Um, you know, they, that they're they're not special. They they're not uniquely heroic. You know, we, we look at such figures and think, wow, what's, there's something really distinctive about that. You know, courage, conviction it took to do that. Um, the fact that you know, if, they're, if they're right about their ordinariness, you can take heart from that. that this is, you know, we might all be pressed you know, right to, that, to show that courage. Um, if you look at, so Cass Sunstein mentioned a book on why societies need dissent. And what he suggests um, is that actually you're, you're more likely to dissent when there's at least one other person willing to go along with you, or you've got at least one other ally. So you know, the, the man sleeping here, he could do a lot of good. He could sort of shift. You know, that if you're in a group and one person is saying something and no one else is endorsing it, um, you know, the group's opinion won't shift toward them. But if at least one other person stands up and says, I agree with you, that can sometimes shift, shift the group's opinion. Uh, so you know, many dissenters, they become part of a community. Um, and yeah, I don't know if it actually detracts from the conscientiousness to, to become a career protester. Uh, you should go to all the events, all the animal rights events, you know, you're, you're there. It's sort of, it has a, you know, a very cohesive community element to it. And I don't, I don't think it has to detract from the conscientiousness that you can find social inclusion in it. Um, but for many people, you know, the, the ease, the, the likelihood that you're going to descend uh, you know, that, that's heightened when you have some fellow travelers. That it's you know, the sort of the full burden of being the, the lone sending voice. Um, you know, you're not having to bear that. You're more likely to well, well, thank you very, very much uh, for an exciting paper. And I hope that uh, many of you will think further about the issues and the arguments and the consequences uh, that were raised by Kimberly's paper today. Thank you.